Hey, I'm Jeffrey. I'm a global Methodist preacher in northeastern Oklahoma, and this is Plain Spoken. And in particular, this is a series on the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline, which governs the new denomination of the Global Methodist Church. So this is um, the document that comes September. The convening conference is going to be augmenting editing. And so right now, the hope is that by getting to know this document better, how things are supposed to be working, that we can more faithfully participate in the covenant and protect it over time. So to do this, uh, my buddy TJ is is always with me. TJ's been sick. Say hello in your sick voice. I'm I'm here. I'm here for moral support. Yeah, I uh, I know how trying it is to to make our way through a document, and uh, you need you need help. If it's all just me, then you know I do some of that stuff. But doing it on this would just not be fun. So. Glad to have TJ along for the ride. Uh, is your voice hurting? No, it's just your brain sounds weird. Yeah, my brain is. I'm definitely out of it a little bit. Okay. Um, I think I'm on the other side of the uh, the worst part of it. So it's my kids are all sick right now. Well, Susanna's not, but the other three are, and then Sarah Beth is. So I don't know how this happens. I don't know. I'm usually the one that gets sick, if anything. But right now, I'm walking on sunshine, and the rest of them are hurting, and you're hurting. I've never seen you this sick. It doesn't happen that often, but sometimes it's just that time of year, I guess. I don't know. I guess so, yeah. All right, well, any any notes, anything to say before we hop back into where we left off last week? Uh, I don't think so. We're in 510, I believe. Paragraph 510. It's on page 68 of the most updated uh, Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline, which you can find. If you want to download your own PDF of it, it's at globalmethodist.org. You can um, look it up easily there. So we are in paragraph 510, bottom of page 68. This is a section dealing with the superintendency, which um, that's the word Methodists often use for bishops. And so we've been figuring out how bishops are supposed to work. So um, I will do... I'll do all of the reading. Today. Yeah, for obvious reasons, I'm going to let you read most yeah. of it. I'll do all of the reading today, and then we'll just get some commentary and feedback from TJ. So let's hop into it together. Paragraph 510 is entitled Consultation and Appointment Making. Consultation is the process whereby the bishop and or presiding elder confers with the pastor and pastor parish relations committee Taking into consideration the criteria of paragraph 511, which is the next paragraph, clergy performance evaluation, needs of the appointment under consideration, and mission of the church. Consultation is not merely notification. Consultation is not committee selection or call of a pastor. The role of the Pastor Parish Relations Committee is advisory, working in partnership with the bishop and cabinet on behalf of the whole church. And the scriptural citation there is Philippians 1. Four through six. The committee must be given the opportunity to give input on the suitability of a proposed appointment and to raise any concerns it might have. When a committee raises substantive and missional concerns about the suitability of an appointment, such concerns must be addressed by the bishop and cabinet in considering whether to make the appointment. The bishop and cabinet must provide a, must provide a rationale, that must is an important word there, for their decision to the committee if they make the appointment. Consultation is both a continuing process and a more intense involvement during the period of change in appointment. The process of consultation is mandatory. 
in every annual conference. The Council of Bishops shall hold its members accountable for the implementation of the process of consultation and appointment making in their respective areas. So previous week, we covered um, a lot of stuff pertaining to appointments being made by bishops and selecting clergy that can do a good job serving the particular congregations. Up until this section, one might have had the question of if bishops are kind of just like little kings and queens, they get to make their own decisions regardless. And uh, no, this paragraph 510 is making very clear there is a consultation process that must take place, otherwise the bishop is going to be in trouble. And it's not just letting a church know that you're giving them this clergy, it's actively seeking their input, and if you go against what they want, providing an explanation, I think it says in writing. So... To your mind, does this sound like a good check on Episcopal authority? So explain this to me. The Pastor Parish Relations Committee is a committee of the church, mm -hmm. not of the annual conference. That's right. Okay, so the bishop is um, consulting with the church on an appointment, and they get to decide, the church decides why. Well, so it's it's saying that if the bishop decides they want to appoint somebody here, mm -hmm. the bishop needs to give a reason why they want to appoint this person there. Is mm -hmm. that what it's saying? Yeah, I, I read it that way. I don't know if it was just in the case that they go against the wishes of the, the Pastor Parish Relations Committee or if it's in every single event. So um, when a committee raises substantive and missional concerns about the suitability of an appointment, such concerns must be addressed by the bishop and cabinet the bishop and cabinet must provide a rationale for their decision. So I think that's just in the event that they go against the the pastor parish relations committee. Okay, so if the pastor parish relations committee doesn't want somebody, then the bishop can do it anyways, or yeah. or what? Yeah. Okay. But they but he or she has to provide a rationale as to why. Now, of course, we always have to remember Global Methodist Church doesn't hold trust clause over right. the real estate. So if this is such a, a heinous and terrible decision, then they, they can, can just, just leave. leave. Yeah. But if it's just kind of a, well, maybe, you know, write it out situation, there are probably not going to be many situations where a bishop makes an appointment that a church doesn't want. Right. So other than the um, obvious, they're not being a trust clause thing and they can just leave. What is it? What is the difference between this and the United Methodist Church? In the United Methodist Church, there is a consultation process, but it's not nearly as musty. You know, they're not, you shall, there must be, this is mandatory, It's um, and it's not defined. So here the language has been defined as it's not just letting them know, it's not just committee work, there is an actual exchange going on here, and gotcha. it's mandatory. So in the United Methodist Church, they've they've put some stuff in about consultation that makes it sound more amenable to the local church. Um, this was a sticking point in North Georgia. They had a big church. I want to say it was called Sugarland or Sugarloaf. No, no, Mount Bethel is what it was called. And um, the bishop notified them that she was changing their head pastor. There was no consultation process. They had like two weeks to get ready for the new clergy, mm. and they said uh, no, and it turned into a big lawsuit where they ended up losing money. So here the GMC is making clear, uh, you're not, we're not going to have another situation like this. There's going to be a consultation process we're going to take into consideration very seriously 
the local church. And in the event that we go against the wishes of the local church, we will give you an explanation. And if you don't like it, we are not holding anything over your head. You can leave. So it's much okay. more, I don't know, amenable to the local church. Fair enough. Yeah. I looked up that uh, Philippians 1, 4 through 6 reference that it had here right after the role of the PPRC is advisory, working in partnership with the bishop and cabinet on behalf of the whole church. That scripture is, in all my prayers for you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I think the only thing it was picking on in that is that they're cooperating, uh, that uh, there's a partnership in the gospel. Right. Okay, so it's there's a partnership. Let's reference that scripture. Yeah, even there's it, a scripture about working together. There's okay. a partnership. Yeah, We're going to have little... a partnership between the bishop and the... PPRC. Okay. All right, paragraph 511, criteria for appointments. Appointments during the period preceding the convening conference must take into account the unique needs of the change, the community context, and also the gifts and evidence of God's grace of a particular pastor to assist bishops, cabinets, pastors, and congregations to achieve an effective match of charges and pastors. Criteria must be developed and analyzed in each instance and then shared with pastors and congregations. So there are three different bodies, the congregations, the pastors, and the missional setting. All three of these it's going to speak to. Point one is congregations. The presiding elder shall develop with the pastor and the pastor parish relations committee of each church a profile that reflects the needs, characteristics, and opportunities for mission of the congregation consistent with the Global Methodist Church's mission statement. These profiles shall be reviewed and updated prior to an appointment being made. This is, of course, something that the United Methodist Church had as well. There was a mandatory yearly process where local churches had to fill out clergy profiles. No, church profiles. The clergy had to fill out clergy profiles, and then there was statistical reporting as well, and that was supposed to be kept on file and considered uh, by the district superintendent and the bishop for this purpose. Okay, so the church has to fill out a profile on itself. Yep. The council. A pastor has to fill out a profile on themselves. Yep. Have you ever looked at one of these? I I mean, I've filled them out for in the United Methodist Church. One of the questions is how much overlap is there going to be between the questions and things that they require? Well, what are some of the questions on on one of the pastor things? Oh, they'll, they'll want us to do an assessment of am I taking enough time off? Am I um, maintaining my physical health? Am I enjoying my appointment? Where am I growing? Where am I stagnant? Um, Just kind of assessing one's performance. Interesting. I I don't know how I feel about self-reported data. Well, that's, I mean, ideally, the, both of those reports can balance each other out. So if there's a real dysfunctional church, then the clergy can report that in their form. If there's a real dysfunctional clergy, church can report that out on their form. But um, yeah, it's a lot of um, where, where as, as the clergy, what, what are you particularly gifted at? What other appointments would you do well at? Uh, are you wanting to leave your appointment right now, or would you rather mm-hmm. stay? How strongly do you feel about it? I mean, it's provided that they're actually consulting it, it's actually a really useful thing to do. The, the problem is when 
what a lot of people sensed in the United Methodist Church, or at least the region that we're in, is they're not reading these. They're not they're not consulting these and pray. They have an opening. They look at who's free. They try and stick a person in there. If it doesn't work, they just put another person in there. Right. Huh. Okay. Let's let's look at the pastor profile. Pastors, the presiding elder shall develop with the pastor a profile reflecting the pastor's gifts, evidence of God's grace, professional experience and expectations, and also the needs and concerns of the pastor's spouse and family. These profiles shall be reviewed and updated prior to an appointment being made. Shall be. I wonder if there's a difference between shall and must in a, a legal sense. I, I guess I just realized that that's... Uh, with the district superintendent that they're doing those. Mm -hmm. So that, I feel like that's better if, if the pastor and the district superintendent are getting together and doing a report on the pastor or whatever. Oh, sure. That, that makes more sense than the pastor just doing it by themselves. Well, the, the third thing I'm assuming is because pastors have a way of being insular. Local church communities have a way of being insular but the whole point of the local church is as a mission outpost to the community around it. So the third part is missional setting. The presiding elders should develop community profiles with the pastor and the pastor parish relations committee. Sources of information for these profiles could include neighborhood surveys, local state and national census data, information from the annual conference, and research data. Profiles should be reviewed and updated prior to an appointment being made. So the expectation is that um, for, some, for one reason or another, a bishop or cabinet discerns that there needs to be a shakeup. So we have this form on the local church, on the pastor, and on the missional setting. Let's read these. Let's pray over these. God will give clarity about what changes, if any, need to be made. Okay. Yeah. I don't have any input on that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean... I don't. I don't see what could potentially be wrong with that. Yeah. As long as you know the 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 thing with all of this is, if you're going to do it, put it in writing, then do it. You know. So if they do it, that's great. Are these? Uh, I assume these are going to be able to be accessed by. Uh, well, who are they actually? Who could get a hold of these in the United Methodist Church? Could some? Could somebody from a from the congregation just get a hold of one of these, or does it have to be like? Um, it has to be a district superintendent that can only see him or a bishop that can only see him. Yeah, the problem with the laity in the United Methodist Church is they usually aren't even asking for him. Right. If they did ask for him, then it depends on who their pastor or DS is, whether or not they would share it with them. Because, yeah. I mean, a lot of churches don't even give financial information to the people uh, if they ask. So, I mean, it's a cultural thing of secrecy. But... Um, Typically, these fo uh, files will only be accessed by people on the cabinet and the annual conference. So that's the bishop and district superintendents generally. Gotcha. Ready to move on? Yeah. Paragraph 512, clergy effectiveness and appointment, in, not insurance, assurance. So in the United Methodist Church, there is a guaranteed appointment for all ordained clergy. Right. Unless charges have been brought against you, you are entitled to a charge. And there's not that in the GMC, right? Well, that's what We're getting ready about. to find out. Okay. Clergy are one of the vital resources of the Global Methodist Church. That the Global Methodist Church has to make disciples of Jesus Christ and spread scriptural holiness across the land. To carry out our God-given mission, 
clergy must be effective in their leadership and ministry. Accordingly, within the GMC, neither elders nor deacons shall have the right to a guaranteed appointment. If a bishop chooses not to appoint a clergy person, the bishop must provide a written rationale for that decision to the individual involved. Clergy are free to seek an appointment in an annual conference other than their own. Deacons and elders who are not under a current appointment shall be considered inactive. And it has references there if you don't know what that means. Okay, so it's not guaranteed. Not No, not at all. And they, they've directly linked that to concerns for effectiveness because it's acknowledging that some clergy might start off effective and then get ineffective. And But the thing I find interesting here is, you know, in a lot of employment situations, I remember I worked at a, a restaurant. This happened at two restaurants I worked at in, in Conway, Arkansas. They decided they didn't like an employee. They'd keep their name on the rotation list, but they just wouldn't sign them up for any rotations. So you, you come in week shifts. after week. Yeah. And uh, that's a cruel way to do things. So here the bishop is going to intentionally not appoint someone, and he or she has to put in writing why that is. Okay. But they're allowed to go and find another church. Like, they're able able to, like, look for one. And Yeah, yeah. Here it makes clear, you know, as long as there's not complaints against you or something, yeah. you can seek employment at a different annual conference, yeah. Right. Okay. Paragraph 513, then? 513. Frequency of appointments. While the bishop shall report all pastoral appointments to each regular session of an annual conference, appointments to charges may be made at any time deemed advisable by the bishop and cabinet. Appointments are made with the expectation that the length of pastorate shall respond to the long-term pastoral needs of charges, communities, and pastors. The bishop and cabinet should work together toward multi-year rather than annual local church appointments to facilitate a more effective ministry. This is a huge change. Yeah, it's the opposite of what the UMC does. So the UMC is going this direction after much protesting for decades. You know, really, ever since the beginning of the Methodist movement, local churches and clergy have not liked itinerancy. It requires continual change, revolution, upending. It's much easier on congregations and clergy to stay in place, have a long-term appointment, but the problem is, according to John Wesley and the early Methodists, that really cuts down on missional effectiveness and the level of energy in a, a collective. So the decision made now is the energy involved, the movement involved, is not nearly as important as stability, growth and relationship, uh, and, and relative comfort. I mean, I, I, I like that. I like that better. I, I'm not... Most people do. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very rare person. It's a very rare clergy who just, I'm so excited to move again after yeah. being here a year. That does not sound fun at all. It's a rare church that, okay, now we get to know and love a whole new pastor yeah. and figure out what their faults and frailties are that we need to operate around. Yeah. So, yeah. This is totally understandable. It's just historically, this is moving very far away from the start of what was once an itinerant movement. Right. It's now very much an institutionalized thing. Yeah. Okay, paragraph 514. Appointment of clergy to ministries outside the local church. Point one, bishops may appoint deacons and elders to ministry settings outside the local church. Such appointments are to be made in consideration of the gifts and evidence of God's grace of the clergy person, needs of the community, and receiving organization. Somebody forgot an Oxford comma. 
the appointment should reflect the nature of ordained ministry as a faithful response of the mission of the church meeting the emerging needs of the world. It may be initiated by the individual clergy person, the agency seeking their service, the bishop or the presiding elder. A similar process of consultation shall be available to persons in appointments beyond the local church as needed and appropriate. Point two, bishops may appoint deacons and elders to attend any recognized school, college, or theological seminary, or to participate in an accredited program of clinical pastoral education. Such appointments are a separate category from appointments to ministries outside of the local church. Okay, so if you're not appointed in a church, you're appointed somewhere else, and that's just all that's saying. Uh, there's not anything controversial about that. Well, it's it's not saying that if you're not appointed to a church, you're automatically appointed somewhere else. It's just saying you can sure. be. you can be. Yeah. yeah. You don't have to be in a local church. Right, which I guess makes sense. Uh, but then there are two kinds of appointments. One is like in a pastoral capacity, you're serving like at, a, I guess, as a hospital. Well, but it's already talked about chaplains, so I don't know, right. maybe... I think it's just saying, so this is almost certainly mostly for deacons, but hypothetically an elder could work for like a hospice facility. I don't know. But then there's a second one, which is being appointed kind of like at a school for clinical pastoral education, and that's a separate kind of appointment thing. I don't really know what that would be about. Yeah, I don't don't know. So they're, they're trying to be very versatile in how it is that clergy can operate which we've already talked plenty about. All right, let's go to section four, assignment and removal of bishops. This will interest a lot of people when when we're looking at uh, bishops potentially being ineffective or brought up on charges. Um, I think later sections deal with being brought up on charges, but this is going to uh, deal with concerns about bishops that need to be removed. Paragraph 515, provisions for Episcopal areas. The Transitional Leadership Council shall determine the number of interim bishops based on missional potential with consideration given to the following criteria. There was five criteria. One, the number of charge conferences and the number of active clergy in Episcopal areas. Two, the geographic size of Episcopal areas measured by the square miles or square kilometers and the numbers of the time zones and nations. Look at them being global. Point three, Uh, Criteria three, the structure of Episcopal areas measured by the number of annual conferences and the overall church membership in all annual provisional annual missionary conferences and missions in Episcopal areas. Criteria four, the existing pattern of superintendency. And point five, the number of bishops transferring into the global Methodist church who are available for assignment. I think all this is doing is just saying... Look at all the things when you make this decision. Right. Which, sure. Yep. <laughs> uh, you'd be really stupid if you didn't. Yeah. So, yeah, but the TLC is going to review these things before they decide. Let's do paragraph 516 on interim bishops. Point one, transferring bishops. The reason it's saying interim is because it's acknowledging the need for a convening conference before a permanent structure is set up. So right, it's just saying, there, in the meantime, before the convening conference, this is how we're going to do things. Was there only like three or four bishops right now? Um, active bishops, there's only two, to my knowledge, Scott Jones and Mark Webb. And then there are a number of, I think we have four uh, uh, bishop emeriti. Okay, emeritus. right, yeah, yeah. 
but the, those are not the bishop emeritus is not they they do things for the church but it's kind of like whatever whenever they don't have like a constant load upon them a, right. an area that they're attending upon yeah okay okay all right uh back to paragraph 516 a bishop of the United Methodist Church or other autonomous Methodist Church may join the Global Methodist Church by clergy transfer. Of course, the United Methodist Church is refusing to acknowledge the Global Methodist Church as a valid entity to transfer to, but whatever. GMC says, let's do it. Application to transfer shall include an explicit written affirmation of the doctrines and social witness set forth in this transitional book of doctrines and discipline and an agreement to abide by its discipline. Transferring bishops shall also agree to uphold the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline. The bishop's transfer is subject to the approval of the TLC. Bishops transferring to the GMC shall be available for interim assignment during the period prior to the convening conference to an existing or newly formed Episcopal area by the TLC. The TLC, count, the TLC may assign a retired United Methodist bishop who has joined the Global Methodist Church to serve as an interim bishop of an Episcopal area during the period prior to the convening conference. So that hasn't happened yet. Um, it remains to be seen how many bishops from the UMC are going to come over in the end. I'm pretty sure Edward Kige, he's in Eastern Europe, is going to come over and be a bishop. I don't know that that's happening anytime soon. I kind of doubt any others from America are, but there might be one or two. But as for right now, we only have two, and then the Bishop Emeriti that have come in have not been assigned to to any area. And I don't think they even have solid boundaries for Webb and Jones. I think they're both kind of serving in different but overlapping capacities. So right. I think they envisioned this being much more geographic in nature than it's turned out being so far. Point two. The convening general conference of the GMC may establish the process for electing and assigning bishops. Those assigned as interim bishops under this paragraph shall serve in that capacity until their successor is assigned under the process to be determined. The convening general conference may provide for interim bishops to continue serving as active bishops, provided they meet the qualifications. Bishops transferring into the GMC will be subject to the term limits set by the convening general conference. I think there's just saying we're going to obey whatever rules the next convening conference comes up with. Right, yeah. Point one was you, if you want to transfer, you've got to believe all the stuff that we believe and yes. yada yada. Uh, and then two is um, you got to abide by all our rules once we decide what they are. Yeah. So, okay. Point three is a retired bishop joining the GMC shall become a senior elder and may bear the title of Bishop Emeritus. A bishop emeritus shall be a clergy member of the annual conference of their choice and may serve in any capacity allowed for senior clergy. A senior elder serving as an interim bishop prior to the convening general conference under paragraph 516.1 will not be considered a bishop emeritus, but shall have all the privileges and responsibilities of an active bishop. So it doesn't actually outline what that is, though, does it? So you can be a bishop emeritus, but what is a bishop emeritus? <laughs> yeah, that, that kind of confused me. A senior elder serving as an interim bishop prior to the convening conference will not be considered a bishop emeritus. 
but a retired bishop joining the GMC. Is that the difference? They're retired before they come in? That's I what, guess. That's a retired bishop coming in and serving as... Bishop Emeritus. Okay. Yeah, for some reason that phrasing was really confusing me. All right, paragraph 517. Vacancy in the office of bishop. A vacancy in the office of bishop may occur due to death, transition to senior status, resignation, administrative or judicial procedure, leave of absence, or medical leave. In case the assignment of a bishop to residential supervision of an Episcopal area is terminated by any of the above causes, the vacancy shall be filled under the provisions of paragraph 516.1 by the Transitional Leadership Council from among active bishops or bishops emeriti. If an Episcopal area lacks a bishop and none are available to be assigned to that area, the Transitional Leadership Council may appoint a president pro tempore who is an elder given responsibility for supervisory oversight of a geographical area until bishop is assigned to oversee that area. So is this the first time where we've seen President Pro Tempore mentioned? Um, I think there were a couple of other ones before, but it's it hasn't really been... It just kind of mentions it. It doesn't really actually um, outline it. Yeah. I'm pretty sure... Do, do a search real quick. Uh, I was wanting to say it was 19, um, but I don't see it in 19. And just do a word search and let me know. But I'm thinking this was what President Pro Tempore's were originally uh, envisioned to be. They seem to have anticipated that there would be more bishops to work with. But what has actually turned out to be the case is we only have two active bishops, but you have a President Pro Tempore for every annual conference. And so, I mean, I don't know how they would have foreseen this exactly. Truth be told, I I, I like it. I uh, I'm imagining a future system of administrators alongside spiritual leaders that are working collaboratively, but they have two different jobs. I, As we've talked more about bishops, I haven't liked the idea of bishops doing both things together. I like the idea of separating these things out and of having fewer bishops than presidents pro tempore. All right, did you did you find if it's mentioned anymore before that? Um, there's nine matches in here. Um, are any before paragraph 518? This one's in five... Oh, 09. Okay. So we covered um, it recently and I just forgot. Considerations for appointments. It just says um, an appointment is finalized only when the bishop has fixed the appointments. The president pro tempore shall complete and submit the pastoral appointment for form to the general church staff within three days of the pastoral appointment being fixed. Yeah. The, the vision of the president pro tempore from the beginning here in this book of doctrines and discipline, I believe is administrative only. And so uh, it seems to me that their role has gotten a lot bigger than what was originally envisioned as is required. So I like it. Any other thoughts on president pro tempore before we move uh, on? No, I just, that, that one's just a, Hey, we've got a vacancy yeah. um, in the bishop with a bishop. Mm-hmm. If we don't have another bishop, you can put a retired bishop in there or president pro tempore. It's like, okay, good. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. You got to call him something. Something. So I, I think, so the notion of pro tempore is if someone is absent, but in the new convening conference, odds are we need to come up with a new title for it because it's not that someone's absent that they're filling in. It's because that's how the structure is. So uh, chief administrator for the conference or something would be appropriate. 
We'll right. see if that's what they stick with. Apparently, the the committee on episcopacy is finally about to, uh, in the next few weeks, hopefully publish something um, as to what they're going to recommend, and then we'll we'll see how that is. I was just going to say the other the other references um, to President Pro Tempore are just like pa- passing. Like there, there's one in uh, paragraph six ten um, that just says. Uh, the bishop assigned shall preside over an annual conference or in case of inability shall arrange for another bishop to preside in the absence of a bishop, the conference shall by ballot without, without debate. Okay. Uh, elected president pro tempore from among the ordained elders. Like that's really, and everything else is bishop or president pro tempore kind of thing. Yeah. Really not much time spent on the... Yeah, there's not really any at all. Yeah. Well, let's go on to status of senior bishops, paragraph 518. Yeah, that's where we are. One, bishops may choose senior status upon approval. For those who weren't with us in that section, choosing senior status is like retirement, but they're saying you never actually retire from ministry. This is just a status you get where... You don't have to serve actively. You still get voice and vote for a little bit. It was like five years, right? Uh, yeah, it was. It was a couple of years. I don't remember exactly, but you, you eventually it ends. Eventually, you don't get voting rights. I think you still get a voice, but you don't get a vote. A vote, yeah. which okay. Yeah, I like that. It makes sense. So I caught some flack for that for being an ageist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Whatever. If you're not if you're not fully participating, then don't expect a vote. Sorry. So the bishops can choose senior status upon approval of a majority of the TLC. Elders who formerly served as bishops but are not now serving as interim bishops may use the title of bishops emeritus, but they will not retain their episcopal responsibilities or membership on the Council of Bishops unless they have been assigned by the TLC to serve in an interim capacity due to a vacancy within an Episcopal area for at least three months. Point two, a bishop emeritus shall be a clergy member of the annual conference of their choice and may serve in any capacity allowed for senior clergy. So uh, figuring out this role of bishop emeritus, they they can have some privileges, but uh, and they're pretty versatile still, but they're just not serving on the level of an active bishop, which makes sense. Yeah. Let's do paragraph 519 concerning leaves. Point one, leave of absence. A bishop may be granted a leave of absence for a justifiable reason for not more than six months by the TLC. During the period for which the leave is granted, the bishop shall be released from all Episcopal responsibilities, and another bishop chosen by the TLC shall preside in the Episcopal area. Point two is medical leave. Bishops who by reason of impaired health are temporarily unable to perform full work may be granted a leave of absence for a justifiable reason for not more than six months by the TLC. During the period for which the leave is granted, the bishop shall be released from all Episcopal responsibilities, and another bishop chosen by the TLC shall preside in the Episcopal area. If, after the six-month time period is over, the bishop is still unable to perform full work due to impaired health, the bishop should apply for disability benefits through the benefit program. All right. Anything to be said about any of that? Um, yeah, I don't think so. The, the only difference between those two is one is medical and one is whatever. Yeah, um, personal, whatever. 
doesn't say. It says yeah. for a justifiable reason. Well, yeah, they're both for justifiable reasons. Um, not more than six months. And the only difference is, I guess, medical leave. If it's after six months, and you've got to apply for disability. I don't know if they've got long-term and short-term disability in that. Uh, who knows? Uh, that is not a line of questioning that my brain is even prepared <laughs> to, to worry about. The thing I worry about is what happens to an area if they have to go without a bishop for six months. That's President Pro Tempore. Here you go. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. But if if they are already weighed down with all kinds of administrative duties, which I imagine they will as this thing continues to grow, uh, it's just, you know, there are a lot of functions that we're imagining being met by a bishop so far as connecting, visioning, holding people accountable. That won't happen for six months. It seems like that's a big enough window for a lot of bad things to happen, you know? Maybe, I guess. That's uh, the... Uh Bishops are are they appointed at a specific like are they are they general conference or like how is that did we even go over that I don't think we What's did go over that and period? I so I think that they imagine that would only take place so what we've covered today only envisions men or women becoming bishops by being bishops in the UMC and transferring over they've not made right. any provision for electing any new bishops until the convening conference. Okay. And at the convening conference, that's when they will decide how bishops are elected and if that's going to be at the annual conference level or at the general conference. Surely it won't be in the general conference level because right now they're thinking of general conference being every 6 years and that's uh, not frequently enough to meet the needs on the ground, I don't yeah, think. Yeah, no. You'd have president pro tempore in a position for a long periods of time and that just does not seem like a solution. And I'm not familiar with, so in the United Methodist Church, you have the jurisdictional conference level. You have groups of six to eight annual conferences that get together, I want to say every two years, I could be wrong, two or four years. I think that, I really don't remember, but that's where they nominate and elect bishops to fill those needs. But I don't recall anyone in the GMC talking about creating that intermediate level between the annual conference and the general conference. Like a jurisdictional conference? That just, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't just think the GMC is going to do that. So It just seems overly complicated. Just do it at the annual level, level and stop. Well, but if bishops don't correspond to an annual conference, which was one of the things that we were looking at last time, like if they're responsible for a group of four or five annual conferences, <sighs> then how do you figure... Uh, I, we'll we'll soon learn the Episcopal, Episcopacy Committee is going to make a recommendation, but... I'm all for making it simple. Just don't make it complicated. Yeah, make it conference. real simple. Just put me in charge. Just let me decide. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I can just... I will look at it myself. Everybody can just accept my decision. Right? Streamline this. <laughs> all right. Um, paragraph 520, complaints against bishops. Point one, Episcopal leadership in the GMC shares with all other ordained persons in the sacred trust of their ordination. The ministry of bishops as set forth in the transitional book of doctrines and discipline also flows from the scriptures. Whenever a bishop violates this trust or is unable to fulfill appropriate responsibilities, continuation in the Episcopal office shall be subject to review. This review shall have as its primary purpose a just resolution of any violations of this sacred trust in the hope that God's work of justice, reconciliation, and healing may be realized. For people who have followed along 
with the United Methodist politics for a long time, just resolution is like a dirty word because that's something that exists outside of the jurisdictional judicial process and where someone who can be guilty of something can just say uh, behind closed doors, I'm sorry, or put something in writing. It can all be dismissed. They don't have to answer for their crimes. Right, and then nobody knows about it because it's all secret. Yep, yeah. yep. So Ridiculous. the the fact that this is in here, hopefully it's going to be utilized differently, but it just sends alarm bells in my head of, oh, we're going to have more people who betray our trust and don't have to answer for it because it's overseen. Yeah, the, it really just depends on who's overseeing the process. Are the bishops really going to be aimed at defending the discipline? Pray God, yes. So, point two, any complaint concerning the effectiveness, competence, or one or more of the offenses listed in the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Disciplines shall be submitted to the chair of the TLC. A complaint is a written statement claiming misconduct, unsatisfactory performance of ministerial duties, or one of or one or more of the listed offenses. I think the key thing there was, if you have a complaint, submit it to the chair of the TLC. Yeah, the TLC, is that, that's not going to be something that continues after the... I think it is. I think it's going to be called something else because it's not going to be transitional anymore. Right. But there is going to be an administrative body that makes executive decisions between general conferences. Interesting. I guess we'll find out. So point one was, if the bishop messes up, Submit a. They're gonna. Somebody's gonna review it. Then I guess that person, that, those people, would be the transitional leadership council. Yeah, yeah. I, I took point one just to say we're gonna hold our bishops accountable. Yeah. All right. Point okay. three. The complaint shall be administered according to the provisions of Part Eight, judicial administration. Any involuntary status change of a bishop must be recommended by a three-fourths vote of the investigative committee and approved by the Transitional Leadership Council by a two-thirds vote. Okay, so, so obviously we're not a point, we're not a part eight yet. Uh, we're only a part five. Um, so there's a Transitional Leadership Council and an investigative committee. So they're going to create a committee to investigate this. Yeah, so that's going to be in part eight. It talks about judicial procedure, and I'll talk about establishing that committee. And then both the committee and the TLC have to sign off on a change that's made against the wishes of the bishop. Okay. Let's see if we can do section five. It's just one paragraph, paragraph 521. We're done with part five. Well, yeah, we just finished part four, and now we're about to knock out part five in like Great. four minutes. It's, called, it's entitled The Council of Bishops. Point one, bishops, although assigned to serve an Episcopal area, are general superintendents of the whole church. As all ordained ministers are first elected into membership of an annual conference and subsequently appointed to pastoral charges, so bishops become, through their election, members first of the Council of Bishops before they are subsequently assigned to areas of service. By virtue of their election and cons consecration, bishops are members of the Council of Bishops, and are bound in special covenant with all other bishops. In keeping with this covenant, bishops fulfill their servant leadership and express their mutual accountability, the development and continuing well-being of its members. No, <laughs> I skipped a line. I'm so sorry. <laughs> the Council of Bishops is a faith community of mutual trust and concern 
responsible for the faith development and continuing well-being of its members. There we go. That makes sense. Prior to the convening general conference of the GMC, interim bishops may begin to meet digitally or in person as an interim council of bishops to provide mutual support and to share best practices, but the council shall have no other responsibilities. Anything to say? So there is a council of bishops, but they're basically just a... a what, hold each other accountable, lift each other up? I don't know. Yeah, that's the long-term goal, I'm sure. For right now, it's just like the club of guys who got out oh, of Yeah, yeah. Oh, UMC you're a bishop. And, yeah. Okay. And we don't have any lady bishops yet, but that is something that the, the UMC makes provision, for, or the GMC makes provision for. Um, the, the first sentence I knew was important to come back to. So they are assigned an Episcopal area, but they were considered bishops of the entire denomination. That's something that is also the case in the United Methodist Church and why it was that even though Bishop Olavito was only bishop in the Western jurisdiction, people from all over the denomination could file charges against her that then were handily dismissed. Um, but even so, we're not going to have a situation where only people in a bishop's area are subject to them. Rather, Bishops are accountable to the whole church. The whole church is accountable to each bishop. That's the nature of the relationship here. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does make sense. Thanks. All right, we have a little bit more time, so let's go on to section six. I know my Roman numerals. This is about ecumenical relationships, paragraph 522. Christian unity. The Global Methodist Church recognizes that the global Christian community transcends denominational barriers consisting of, quote, all true believers under the lordship of Jesus Christ, end quote, and may be found wherever the, quote, pure word of God is preached and the sacraments duly administered, end quote. Pretty sure it's quoting John Wesley there. Jesus' prayer in John 17 that all his disciples, quote, may be one, end quote, compels us to seek closer communion with brothers and sisters of different communions. Locally and globally, Christian communions, which are committed to the, quote, faith once delivered to the saints, end quote, that's Jude, uh, verse 3, if you don't know, will find in the Global Methodist Church a willing partner in worship, evangelism, disciple-making, and works of mercy. So what it's making clear here is we are Christians, but we don't see ourselves as the only Christians, and we're going to play nicely with others. Right, yeah, there's you, only global Methodists are Christians, they're not saying that. That would be so bananas if we yeah, did say that. That's, I don't think there's probably a single person who believes that, but... Um, I don't know. There are a lot uh, of crazies, but this is just so new. Here in 10 years, maybe, man, yeah, if we yeah, get real good, good on point. solidifying our doctrine, but that would just be so nutty if someone believed that right now. Yeah. So. But it's good to establish, we're going to play well with others. Point two. Transitional Wesleyan Unity Commission. A. The Transitional Leadership Council shall appoint a Transitional Wesleyan Unity Commission that shall be chaired by a bishop of the Global Methodist Church and consist of eight additional persons. I do not know if this has been established yet. I wish I'd read ahead and been able to ask about this. It's, it's, okay, let's go on because I'm, I'm, it B. seems weird to me. The Transitional Wesleyan Unity Commission shall bring recommendations to the Transitional Leadership Council with respect to full organic union with other Wesleyan denominations or associations of churches either before or at the convening 
General Conference. The Transitional Wesleyan Unity Commission shall recommend to the Transitional Leadership Council whether such denominations or associations shall have representation at the convening general conference with voice and with or without vote. So yeah, this is one of the weird things about the United Methodist Church. At general conference, they actually allow representatives from other denominations to have voice and vote at the session. So this body is going to be responsible for figuring out, okay, are we going to let the free Methodists attend and let let one or two of them vote? That's Yeah, that's weird. That's why, like I get, I get Christian unity and everything, but if they're not part of the denomination, I give them a vote. If you want to be part of the denomination, join the denomination. We'll give you a vote. Yeah, I'm all about cooperation. But yeah. if they're not having to live under the covenant we design here, then it makes no sense to me to have them be a part of designing the covenant. Right, yeah. Like, are we involved in theirs? Like, are they giving us a vote in theirs? And if which is the case, why don't we just join and merge? Yeah. That just seems this unnecessarily extra complication that you got a whole other committee that's worried about worried about this. TJ thinks that's extra. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm all for simplicity, and this is not simple. This is unnecessary. Let's, we're halfway through point B. Within discussions about greater union with other denominations or associations, particular care shall be given, taken to uphold the doctrine and moral principles and polity of the Global Methodist Church. The Transitional Leadership Council shall have the option of approving a plan of union to be effective immediately or to recommend such a plan of union to be approved at the convening general conference. And then point C says... The Transitional Wesleyan Unity Committee shall bring recommendations for covenant relationships with affiliated covenant churches under paragraph 523.4, which it looks like we're about to get to, to be approved at the convening general conference. Okay. Anything to be said about any of that? No, there's not anything other than what I've just said, which seems unnecessary. Merge or stop. Like, just, we don't need another committee for anything i'm, I'm not stuck within the united methodist church there was uh there is still a general commission gcc uic general church council on unity i don't remember but it was the body responsible for all this ecumenical conversation about how they can be in fellowship with other bodies and it's funny ecumenism that's the word for this effort of churches cooperating together, acknowledging each other as equals. It's something that should move biblical Christians, but it's something that for some reason the lefties have always taken over. And any sort of larger ecumenical efforts like the World Council of Churches or National Council of Churches have ended up going in like straight-up Marxist directions. Yeah, they just just let everybody in because we all want to be united, and eventually you got to take down the the requirements till it's almost it's almost meaningless like you know let the mormons into unity christian unity yeah as as uh it, it's weird well i'm not i'm not equipped enough to talk about that but it's just weird the ways in which it's simultaneously really snobby and focused on doctrine and then also really accepting of stuff that yeah. Well, I mean, it's oriented by leftist values, so that uh, any uh, I need to stop talking. <laughs> let's um, let's do one more paragraph 
Oh my gosh. That's the last paragraph. I've, oh, I yeah, thought we yeah, were yeah. done. Let's this is the last part one. Five. Okay, we'll, yeah, that's great. Be done with part five. Okay, all right, here we go. Paragraph 523, other Wesleyan denominations. Point one, in addition to wider ecumenical and inter-church cooperation, the Global Methodist Church has a particular interest in fostering greater unity with other Wesleyan and Methodist groups which share a common heritage of theology, history, and polity. Unity among the spiritual heirs of John Wesley is a profound hope and desire of the Global Methodist Church, rooted in our heritage as a connectional movement, linking congregations and conferences in cooperative ministry and mutual encouragement. Closer relationships with other Wesleyan groups provide increased opportunities for global mission and evangelism, enrichment in our understanding and practice of ministry, and the sharing of resources and expertise. Point two, World Methodist Council. Founded in the 19th century by predecessor denominations of the Global Methodist Church, the World Methodist Council has been an effective forum for the development of trans-Methodist fellowship and cooperative ministry. Following its legal formation, the Global Methodist Church will apply for formal membership in the World Methodist Conference. I actually don't know if we've done that yet. If we've been granted membership, I'm unaware of it. I'm curious as to who is part of this World Methodist Council. Yeah, you know off the top of your head? Um, I'm pretty sure the Free Methodists are. I'm pretty sure, well, the United Methodists. Yeah, like everybody. So United Methodists are. You think that's gonna that's gonna go over well? Oh yeah, yeah. I think I think there's gonna be like a massive global defection from the United Methodist Church, like deferring to the United Methodist Church to actually deferring to the Global Methodist Church as like the hegemon. So, are you looking up the membership? Yeah, I'm trying to see if they've got a list of uh. Who's actually on this? Okay. They've got a president, a general secretary. Yeah, keep looking. I'm going to read point three. Other trans-Methodist bodies. The Transitional Wesleyan Unity Commission, that's what was established in the previous paragraph, is charged with exploring the advisability of membership of the Global Methodist Church and other trans-Methodist organizations, such as the Asian Methodist Council, European Methodist Council, Global Wesleyan Alliance, or Pan-Methodist Commission. I wasn't even aware those were things. Did you um, find constituent groups? I, I did for North America because it's got a list of different different ones. But in North America, um, it looks like they've got the Church of the Nazarene, yep. the Wesleyan Church, okay. the Free Methodist Church, yep. the United Methodist Church, the AME Church, uh, AME Zion Church, yes. uh, Christian Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, Methodist Church in the Caribbean and the Americas. Nice. Uh, Autonomous Methodist denomination, and then uh, United slash Uniting denominations, whatever that is. Yeah, I can't say. Yeah, so that's uh, hold on. Does it actually say on here? Um, no, it doesn't. And it's funny. This doesn't correspond with. There's a a list of like thirteen denominations that the United Methodist Church is in full communion with. Like they can exchange each other's sacraments. And uh, I don't think any of those churches is on that list. Really? Yeah. Huh. It's a bunch of like, I think the ELCA is the biggest one on the Evangelical Lutheran Christian Alliance Association. I forget what the, the A stands for in the ELCA, but the liberal Lutherans they're in full communion with. But other than that, it's um, it's all uh, obscure. I'm, I'm curious to see how much like how much interaction there would be between the different denominations and like what interaction it is besides like a, a conference once a year, once every however often. 
It's like, it, it felt whenever I did this research like a year ago, it felt to me like they had just cobbled it together like 15 years ago and then not added to it or done anything. About yeah. It. Just like, Hey, we're a part of this group. But the reason I looked into it was because in the issue of transferring clergy credentials from the UMC to the GMC, their leadership, a lot of it said, well, shucks, we can only do that with bodies that we officially recognize. And so I looked up those official bodies that they recognize, and it was like 13. And we have, or the UMC has uh, all kinds of cooperatives with other denominations that are not on that list. So it just felt really sloppy and contrived. Yeah, that's kind of how it comes off to me. Point four, affiliated covenant relationships with other Christian denominations or associations of churches. The Global Methodist Church welcomes covenant relationships with other Christian denominations or association of churches which do not involve organic union with the Global Methodist Church. We celebrate that some may wish to explore a closer formalized relationship but not unite organically with the Global Methodist Church. The purpose of establishing such covenant relationships is to enhance our mutual Christian witness and effectiveness and or to allow for increased reach into regions or nations where one or the other has little or no presence. Conversations toward formalized relationships as affiliated covenant churches may be held by the Transitional Wesleyan Unity Commission prior to the convening general conference as set forth in paragraph 522.2, with such recommendations being presented to the convening general conference for approval. These covenant relationships may include mutual recognition of baptism and ordained ministry, Eucharistic fellowship, shared representation at governing assemblies, and or plans for shared ministries and resources. TJ loves that one. I, I, I just need examples of like what these would be. So immediately my brain is going to the Global Methodist Church's meeting in Costa Rica for the convening conference. There is a Methodist presence in Costa Rica. However, it's not Global Methodist. They have a bishop. And so when they announced the convening conference to be in Costa Rica, they had the Methodist bishop of that region make a formal statement, an invitation, but they're not joining up with the Global Methodist Church, at least not yet. Lord. But there is some kind of collaborative, collective effort on the part of our two Methodist groups to make this thing happen. Okay, and they just need a thing in the Book of Discipline that says, hey, we can do this. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> so you don't have some stickler going, actually, the Book of Discipline makes no provision whatsoever for us to cooperate with. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Point five, union with the Global Methodist Church. We rejoice that some Wesleyan bodies may wish to explore full organic union with the Global Methodist Church. The Transitional Wesleyan Unity Commission or its designated representatives shall represent the Global Methodist Church in conversations re re related to full union. You know, they've almost certainly established this body because I know these conversations are happening. What, what, full organic union? What does, it, what does it mean by that? I think that means another denomination joining officially to be part of the Global Methodist Church. Okay. Okay. Um, prior to convening general conference, such plans of union may be approved by the TLC or maybe... Oh, so maybe the TLC is doing this. Or may be recommended for approval to the convening general conference. Such plans of union shall include one a statement of vision or a preferred future, two, a statement on doctrinal and theological alignment, and three, a plan for integration of ministries, including evidence of consultation with all regional conferences directly affected by the plan of union. So it has a point A and point B under this. Point A, 
plans which do not require alterations to the transitional book of doctrines and discipline of the Global Methodist Church shall be ratified by a simple majority vote of the Transitional Leadership Council prior to the convening general conference and become immediately effective. The other Wesleyan body shall have voted to dissolve its own governance structure to become effective upon ratification of the plan of union by the Transitional Leadership Council. Point B says... Plans which require alterations to the Transitional Book of Doctrines and Discipline of the Global Methodist Church shall require a three-fourths majority vote by the convening general conference for ratification. So there are going to be other denominational bodies that are interested in joining with us. Some of them, it'll be an unconditional, hey, we're just going to give up on our project. It was a good project. We want to join you guys. You've got a good setup. Let Just let us in. We're going to take yours. Yeah. So A is going to be... We want to take yours, and then the transitional uh, leadership council just votes on it. Right. And then if they say, hey, we want to join you, but we want some changes, uh-huh. um, B says three-fourths majority vote of the Canadian General Conference has to say, okay, that sounds good. We'll do that. Exactly. Okay. That's, so, I'm fine with that one. That one's, Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I wonder how many conferences are going to want or uh, denominations are going to want to join with the GMC. I suspect there are going to be a lot, actually. Can you think of any off the top of your head that might want to? No. Well, okay, so in talking with friends in Nigeria, I learned that there are over 20 Wesleyan denominations just in Nigeria. So if you are some provincial Methodist or Wesleyan group and you're looking at this global Methodist entity that is building up this huge musculature to do amazing mission around the world and reclaim the Methodist heritage, then I think you're crazy not to think about joining up. Yeah, I guess I guess that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, outside of the U.S., there would be a bunch of different yeah. Methodist flavors. Now, within the U.S., if that was your question, I think, so um, I'm forgetting his name right now. We had an interview scheduled, and then he had to cancel. Um, he was a bishop of the... Evangelical Methodist Church, the EMC, and he has joined with the GMC. And I know that a lot of people within the EMC have talked about maybe just joining up with the GMC. So, and I, I, I don't think the big crews like the Nazarenes or Free Methodists are talking about it, but I wouldn't be surprised if smaller crews have talked about it. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe eventually. Like, as long as the GMC can get it together and remain like consistent and faithful to the book of discipline, I think. Yeah, Surely. that's all eyes are on the GMC to see yeah. if they can be more faithful than the UMC. Right, yeah. And to be clear, I see a lot of signs that it will. So I'm, I'm being hopeful with a lot of people. All right, okay. well, this was uh, the last of this. Uh, next week, it looks like we're getting into part six, which deals with annual conferences. So make sure to, to stay on board with us. We are on page 74 out of... 105. So we're almost that's three quarters sweet. of the way there. That's, that's great. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen it yet, I'm uh, starting a series with my daughter Susanna on the Global Methodist Church's uh, catechism, and so make sure to, to stay tuned for that. Hopefully between this and that and the other stuff that I do, uh, my whole intention is, is making sure that the G- Global Methodist Church is a democratic affair, not informed primarily by decisions made in uh, uh, secret rooms off somewhere, but something that all of us are a part of, not just praying for, but implementing and protecting together. So I hope that this has been helpful to you in that. Y'all make sure to pray for TJ and his recovery if you're watching this soon after it's come out. 
just continue to pray for the Global Methodist Church. A lot of excitement around this convening conference. If you haven't done it yet, you might think about going over to globalmethodist.org. I think that's what it's called, the, the website, and making a special donation to make the convening conference happen. I know that there's some anxiety about that money coming together. I'm absolutely certain it will. But if you have just even five or ten bucks uh, to put towards that, it, it would be great if that could be fully funded. We can have delegates from all over the world come. It would be great to do this thing right. So think about that. I think I'll stop. That'll be the end of my pushing you. Uh, really glad you joined us. We'll be back at it next week, and TJ's voice will be back to normal thanks to your prayers. All right. See y'all.